and welcome to the latest edition of Magnified, my podcast series in which I get an opportunity to speak to people in much greater detail than is often possible on The Last Word in Today FM. We take time sitting at my kitchen table to talk about all sorts of things in my guest's life. Now, today's guest is somebody who I worked for during my time with TV3 when he was the chief executive there. And I got to know him very, very well as a genuinely inspirational leader of the business. He's now the chief executive of OnPost and has very interesting views about the role of that state commercial body in Irish society and the responsibilities that come with that. He also has a very interesting backstory, a family that was immersed in media and his own move into bookselling when he finished his degree in Ireland in the 1980s when jobs were almost impossible to come by and he moved overseas for many years. So I hope you enjoy today's Magnified Podcast with David McRedmond. David McRedmond, thank you very much for joining me at my kitchen table. You're somebody I've known for nearly two decades at this stage and you were very kind to put me on TV3 for the Rugby World Cup in 2007. We started a long relationship that I had with that station. But now you're with on post and if I'm right, I think you're six years with on post this month. And how much of a sense do you have, have you developed over the last six years of the importance of on post in Irish life, that it's not just another job as a chief executive that you might have taken, that there's a real sense of unpost's importance in communities all over Ireland. It's incredible. I mean, it is. This job has been for me the real, you know, the real honour of my career doing this job. And I did not quite expect that going into it. I went into it because. I was asked and I went in and I thought, well, look, it's a turn. I knew it was a turnaround and I like doing turnarounds. And although it was my first time in the public sector, I thought that would be interesting as well. So I went in to to do that. I expected to stay three years. And indeed, I told the chair at the time, I said, listen, I'll probably just do this for two or three years, help with a turnaround, then get a management team in place. And actually, the place takes you over because it is a really extraordinary company. It's very much at the heart, I'd say at the heart of communities, but also at the heart of the state. You know, there's something very much, there's something quite idealistic about it, that it's part of the Irish state, it's part of the fabric of the state and fabric of communities. And if you can leverage that, to use a not great business for it, but if you can leverage that, if you can if you can get energy from that, you can achieve great things. And, you know... For us, that was very much during the pandemic. We'd done a lot of work beforehand with kind of big transformation underway. Um, trans- transformation from an old world of letters into a new world of e-commerce, old world of uh, social welfare, new world of financial services in the two main businesses, which are delivery business and the post office business. All that's underway. You've, we've fixed some of the core economics by sorting out the pricing and getting the pricing right of stamps and all those things. But the most important thing was to really do that piece to work out, you know, what what do we really stand for? And it was well before the pandemic, about a year before we'd done some work. Um, I did it with my colleague, uh, Debbie Byrne, and the work was, well, you know, we who are we? Well, we say we act for the common good. And... And then we add on to that now and for generations to come, which is the whole sustainability issue. And sustainability was becoming big then. I 
just kind of words until you need them. And But when it came to the pandemic, it was a light going on for everybody. It was so clear. This was our soul. Our soul is to act for the common good. And acting for the common good meant, and particularly at that stage in the very first lockdown, which was so terrifying, it brought together, first of all, that idea of acting for the common good. But secondly, and this is the really kind of rudimentary piece, the absolute basic necessity of getting physical goods to people. That's a kind of basic necessity in any society. And yet have been taken for granted for years, I think, um, in most societies. Um, and actually when people were in lockdown and they had to work out, how am I going to get things? How do I get stuff? And that transformed the world of Unpost. And um, we connected that to that sense of purpose of acting for the common good. And it just became something that was really, really quite soulful for, for the three years of the pandemic. The other thing, though, that on post is very important to rural Ireland is the sense of having a location, a centre in various places. And I know you've, because for financial reasons, have had to shut some post offices. But has your view on that changed over time as well as to the importance of the post offices and maintaining as many open as possible? No, no, always, always my intention, always the intention of the team was precisely to keep as many post offices open as possible. So strategy was very simple. We'd done a lot of strategy work with McKinsey and... And uh, the strategy was very simple, to consolidate post offices. Literally, you could have three in the Barra Peninsula, all of which are losing money. If you shut one and you just have two that make money, then you keep those two. So consolidation was not a euphemism for closure. Consolidation really meant what it meant, which is that by getting the network to the right size, we could support it for the future. Now, the other element to that is once you've got a network the right size, and we didn't have too many post offices, um, arguably we still do have a few too many post offices, but they are incredibly important to their communities. I mean, I've had to visit communities where they want to keep their post office open, and we've had to be fairly tough and say, no, you know, we have to be fair to apply the same rules to everybody, to get away from the kind of parish pump politics and say, you know, and honestly, I've had very senior politicians call me up for a particular post office somewhere and just said, no, no, there's a rule. You know, if it's populations below 500 and, and the postmaster wants to retire, no, we're not replaced. So, but that became very clear and a clear principle. And then we'd have a good network through which we can put through um, a whole load of services. And the whole issue then is what additional services can you put through? Right now, perhaps, again, in the way that business, you know, the thing in business is, is your most businesses are dying. All businesses are dying, you know, uh, other than maybe the 10 years of their startup period. Ryanair is dying until it finds its new future, which might be new routes or might be new something. You've got to constantly find new growth or a new future. And sometimes it comes along. And for us now in Unpust, the closure of banks, of rural banks, is really important because we can provide agency banking. And, you know, our submission to the banking review, which is, is in November, 
is, you know, our submission is for the government to put in place the banking framework. We've great deals, you know, Bank of Ireland and AIB do their services through Unpust. And we're saying all the banks here should do their services through Unpust. So that Unpust really becomes the retail front end, uh, physical front end for banks. And that's a very, very useful service. But of course, it also helps to keep the post office going with the other services, with social welfare, which is so important, state savings, which are so important, um, but even just the presence in the community. I remember Leah Varadkar telling me um, uh, that he'd read some study somewhere of uh, riots in France, and that this is maybe 10 years ago, I would guess, that the riots at that time in the banlieue were where usually where there wasn't a post office. And a post office is this kind of very benign presence of the state and of government. You know, at that sense that I was saying earlier, that that impost is the state, but it's a kind of benign, we're on the citizen side, have, have no doubt about it, you know, and we'll fight for the citizens. So I think to have that supported and then to meet a commercial need, to have those two things happening, that's really the, that's the sauce. So, David, has all of this turned you from a tooth-and-claw capitalist into some sort of socialist? I always keep a foot in the capitalist camp. Um, you know, I'm the chairman of AIR, and which company I'm very proud of what that is doing. And actually, actually what, I, what I know, and I think what I've known through most of my career, is that public service is not a, the sole remit of government-owned companies or state companies. Privately-owned companies can deliver public service. Ryanair delivers arguably the best public service in the state, um, getting people on and off this island. Um, you can deliver public service in different ways. TV3 did it under your direction. I think TV3, I think we did do it. I think uh, we did it in particular around having alternative voices in current affairs uh, and have done so since. I think we we did it in having alternative presentations of, of, of sport. You know, I think, in, yes, you can still provide, you know, that sense of public service is much more about, are you a consumer-facing company or are you a customer-facing company? And they're the companies I like doing. I've been, you know, I'm not somebody who's ever going to be any good at doing, you know, big B2B businesses or big contracting businesses. And indeed, when I've done them in the, the past, I probably haven't been very good at them. I remember for a while I ran a contracting business in, in the US and I didn't do a very good job. You know, it's not my thing. Um, I really need the energy that you get from customers, from the public and from and then building brands around that. How did business become your thing? Because you have a master's in history mm. And initially, I believe you wanted to follow your father into journalism. I did. I, I'd love, I still want to be a journalist and still think there'll be time. Uh, I, uh, I went to the UK, there were no jobs in, in the mid 80s in, in, in Ireland. And I applied for loads of jobs in newspapers and the BBC and everything. And of course, I wasn't going to get any of them. And uh, I ran out of money. So I got a job working in a bookstore. And it was the second bookstore that Tim Waterstone had opened and became great friends with Tim Waterstone and, uh, and others. And, and a gang of us built that up into being the biggest book chain in Europe. And at the time, bookstores were the internet. You know, there wasn't, how, how do you learn things? How do you get knowledge? How do you find things out? You go to bookstores. I remember we did 
I, uh, and in fact, an old colleague of mine, John Mitchinson, was telling me the other day, um, you know, remember we did the Waterstones Guide to Books. It was the biggest book ever printed, sort of like 2,000 pages or something, which had every book and catalogued and everything. This was the internet. You know, <laughs> this was all, we were absolutely passionate about it. But that's how I got involved in business. I remember when Waterstones came to Ireland, there was an enormous fear that it was going to close all of the small mm. bookshops but what I loved about Waterstones was the range of books that you had and the presentation. It was mm. bright. It was mm. an attractive, welcoming place to come to, but also the scale of it at the time. It was kind of, it was messianic being in, in Waterstones. We had a clear mission, which was to bring books where books hadn't been for a long time. And the range of books had got narrower and narrower, mainly because of a kind of cynicism on the high street, whether that be W.H. Smith or whoever, um, which just saw books as being, well, let's just sell the best sellers. And you end up with ever narrowing uh, range of books in that case. Um, the independence, some were good, but an awful lot weren't. Um, and, and almost all were underinvested, just simply didn't have the money and didn't invest to open big bookstores. So we opened big bookstores everywhere. And absolutely love doing it. Now, opening in Dublin, you imagine, is fairly easy. But then opening in some more traditional places like um, in Stoke or in, in Bradford or in these, you know, big working class towns and putting in three bays of poetry books, you know, that's the thrill. And making stuff available because, of course, of course, everybody likes books. Everybody can, everybody likes some books. And, and books are not an elitist thing. And so actually opening them everywhere, that gave me certainly the real energy. You know, that was the excitement of that. Um, the business piece follows, you know, if you, if you know what the mission is, and the mission is to bring books everywhere, make them available, to really back authors, to sell books big, to tr try new things. You try and do all of that. Generally, the business will look after itself with some reasonably good business management, but not great business management. Yeah, but were you surprised to find yourself suddenly as a businessman? I guess so. I mean, it was a fairly, you know, you I ended up kind of running bookstores, that's fine, and you're still a bookseller and you're still doing things. And then I was, Tim Waterstone sent me to the United States to open Waterstones there. And then it started switching. I started really think, having to think a bit more about the business, more about property, more about you know, rents per square foot and sales per square foot and all of that stuff. And But I enjoy it. You know, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed that learning. Um, but I think, I think I couldn't have done it in another environment. I had to have something else. I had to have that mission and that purpose. Um, so if it hadn't been in bookstores, you might not have gone into business? I, I think quite possibly not, yeah. I, I think if it hadn't been in... Certainly if it hadn't been in something that was really motivating... Um, or that had a really clear sense of delivering some some uh, kind of need, delivering some public need, then no, I'm not sure, sure I would. You know, um, health services deliver public need. Would I be able to do that? I don't know. Would, um, you know, look at other areas, uh, but uh, would I have been an accountant? No, I don't think so. Um, because if I would have been an accountant, I probably would have gone into accountancy. But you had to then have a, had an MA in history. You had to learn certain business skills. And I was looking at your CV and I was surprised to see that one of the places where you trained was the Cabinet Office yeah. in London. Yeah, yeah. I, I did a couple of... So, uh, I mean, W.H. Smith, who then took over Warstones, um, 
was actually a brilliant, brilliant company, brilliant old um, Victorian values, like some of the great British companies, some of the, like some of the Huguenot companies, things like Cadbury's, companies like Cadbury's, or companies like even some, you know, the chemical companies, Glaxo. These great old British companies really believed in training. And they trained you endlessly. And there was a kind of country mansion that you'd be sent away to. And I always thought I was going to be recruited for MI5 when I was going to it. And uh, I, I was probably too talkative for that. But you'd go to those places and, and you'd be trained in time management or coaching or whatever it might be. Um, but also, you know, they sent me to INSEAD, which I was really grateful for in France. And that, that was fantastic learning. But then they also sent me to the cabinet office and the cabinet office in the UK does this unique training. And I actually mentioned it to the government secretary here at the time. I said, it'd be a really good thing to bring in here where they train their kind of fast track uh, civil servants. They're kind of undersecretaries of state or, or junior undersecretaries of state. Um, and they mix them 50-50 with uh, high-flying people from the world of business, the world of commerce and luckily I was considered that um, and you get together and you you work together and you you look at public projects like we'd go and do a pro we'd do a project on hospitals in Kent how could they be better organized and then likewise um, on the private side we take a look at Marks and Spencers in Europe how could they be better organized what's their strategies and all that so it was actually really good learning the idea in the UK was to get that intermingling of public and private, so both could understand each other, but of course also in that classic British way to set up networks. And, and actually I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great idea. I think it'd be great here to get a much greater mix of public sector and private sector. Um, I, I think many of the divisions between them um, are slightly false. Uh, Patrick Coveney has made that point, that the division between the public sector and private sector is often false, you know, and I think it is. And, but I think it's really useful to get the learnings from both. You went to the United States. Waterson sent you there and you stayed there for how long? So I was there on and off for five years and uh, Waterstones, we opened in Boston and the idea was that it would be an experiment, open huge bookstores and literally there was nothing there. I just went there and found a site and we opened a bookstore in Boston. Was this cool. is before Barnes and Noble and those places? They were all just opening at the same time, and it, but it was slightly before them. I think we spooked them when they saw, I mean, it was huge, the bookstore in Newbury Street and Back Bay in Boston, absolutely Fabulous bookstore, fantastic place. And then the second site we took, which was a big mistake, my mistake, in Chicago, and it was just off what they call the Miracle Mile, um, North Michigan Avenue. In those days, in, in the early 90s, you didn't go, in America, you didn't go just off the main drag because people would think, they'd think it's dangerous, you'd be mugged. And so we opened just off. And so it took a lot to persuade people to walk this extra 20 yards. That extra 20 yards, you know, meant the rent was half the price. But there was a reason. And that was a mistake I made. It was kind of one of the biggest mistakes of my career. And, and so that store didn't do so well. Um, and then we experimented, funnily enough, with airport stores. Because at that stage, WH Smith 
had acquired, had then just acquired uh, Waterstones and they had a travel retail business. So we opened Waterstones bookstores in airports, which was kind of anathema in that the range is much more limited, but they were great fun. It was kind of like an edited edition. I think I think Tim hated them and Tim and I used used to talk about it, joke about it. And, uh, uh, but he, he kind of put up with it. He thought it was interesting. He hated them except when they worked, of course, like anybody, you know, uh, success is always, always good. How did you find America as a place to live and work and were you tempted to stay there? Um, well, I went back a second time. I was there, first of all, when I say five years, I was there three years the first time, back in the UK a few years, running Waterstones in the UK and Ireland, and then back in the US for a couple of years, running um, WH Smith Group there. So my two times in the States, you know, I, I, I actually found it, um, it's a less exciting country to live in than it is to visit. Um, it's, you know, when you visit America, you get the best of America. Their fantastic ability at logistics, at transport, at hotels, at restaurants, at fast moving, um, theme parks, everything, all the excitement, all the great places and, and all of that. When you live there, you realize how different it is. It's a very, it is very conservative. Even liberal society is very conservative. Um, and it is also not very diverse, except in a way that certainly in parts of America they found problematic. I found the racism quite diff- very difficult to deal with. For example, when we were in Atlanta, um, it was very segregated. And I dealt with a lot of issues at work around racism and how to deal with it and to do diversity training and all of those things. And, and, and that I found quite tough. But what I found really tough was just that You'd fly 2,000 miles and places would be fairly much the same, you know. Um, it's a very different culture. We think it's the classic thing. We think it's the same as us because we speak English. We're much more like Italians. We're much more like the Spanish, you know, far more like them than we are. In what way? Um, in that we're social, we're gregarious. Uh, we, like, we like the balance of life. We're, we're less... I think we're less hungry, which can be good and bad. You know, there's a reason why America's been very successful. It's because America's very hungry. People, people want to work, you know, and there is the old mentality of, you know, circling the wagons. My family, I look after my family, I protect them. And, you know, I understand why there's gun rights. I don't like them, but I understand why they want them. I understand why they work incredibly long hours. I understand why... They're obsessed with getting on and earning more money and doing more things because those are the basic necessities. And it's that kind of frontier culture. And that culture really drives America and is really admirable in many ways. But it's different. And, you know, our culture is more community-based, much more community-based, much more a sense of neighbours and, and much more a sense of the city. You know, I'm from Dublin. I came back here. I grew up in Dundrum. I love Dundrum. And then came back here. I live in Glastool. I love Glastool. Um, I love Europe. I just was in Rome last weekend. Um, I, I love European culture. One of the things I missed in America was the difference, you know, being able to go to somewhere with a different language, different food, different... They look different, you know. All of that is is that variety in Europe I'd miss.
given your experience of living in the United States, so what is happening in the country and what has been happening over the last decade, that doesn't come as a surprise to you, so does no. it? No, no, sadly it doesn't. Um, no, I could see all of that, particularly, at, and it was my wife, Penny, who was smart enough in Atlanta to say, no, look, I'm, you know, when my son, Ben, was came home from somebody's house and said we were playing with so-and-so's dad's guns, and Penny said, right, I've had enough of this. So um, she said, look, I think we'll go back. And um, I think we could, there were a few things then. I think I think race is very much at the heart of a lot of, of what drives America. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it does not all surprise me at the at Black Lives Matter, at the anger of, of African-Americans. I completely get it. Um, and... And also, I also get, though, the incredible divide there is between rich and poor. And it is quite incredible. I have a friend who lives in the Appalachians. And I mean, I've, the places I've driven through in the Appalachians are poorer than anywhere I've seen in southern Europe or, uh, you know, in rural areas of, uh, of northern Europe. It's far poorer. Um, and... And, you know, also that sense in America that there's no safety net. Um, all of those things mean that, that, you know, this was not sustainable. And America's not sustainable in that form. And I think it's having to change now. It's having to change very rapidly. And some places are and some places aren't. And, you know, it's the American dream is still in there somewhere. But whether they can get it out again in, in a way that works for everybody and not just for some individuals is really questionable. I think the other issue that's really difficult in America now is, is, and it's not just America, it's globally, but I think it impacts in America more, is the emergence of big tech. You know, where's the room for other companies? How can you compete? Um, So, so it's a lot of soul searching in America, I think. And, and it's, it's, Sad to see because despite saying, you know, it's not where I particularly want to live, I still love the place. It's still an amazing place. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary what human beings are capable of doing, building cities in the middle of, of nowhere um, from nothing. You know, I look at a city like Atlanta, which basically is an airport with a city built around it. And we don't get that in Europe. That's what it is. That's how, that's how important the airport is. It's, it's, it was a terminus, Atlanta. It was originally a railway terminus. And now it becomes that. And then, then city builds up around it. And then the city changes. And, you know, that's the great bit of America is its malleability and its ability to change, its ability to, to reshape, its ability to see new possibilities. Um, but it's got a lot of problems too. You came back to Ireland just after the turn of the century, I think, wasn't it? Having been away for around 15 years, having left UCD when there were no jobs in Ireland to be had, how much of a change was Ireland for you coming back? How much had it changed? It had changed less. Less had changed than than had changed. Um, So it was very familiar coming back to it, actually, in terms of... um, it was very familiar in terms of you know, the geography. And the geography of Ireland is really important. Like, our climate is really important. We've, we've the most wonderful climate in the world, I think. I mean, Dublin, I think, is the most fantastic climate. Yes, we moan a bit, it rains a bit, all that, but it actually changes all the time. 
it's windy, things, you know, London can be very grey. You can get days and days of grey, you don't get that. So the climate, the red brick houses, the sea, the, you know, the mountains, the nearness of the countryside, the ability to go to Connemara uh, in a few hours, all of those things are things that stay the same. The things that change are, of course, culture, and does the cult- did, had the culture changed? And the answer was yes and no. The culture changed in terms of business in that we had this almost frantic approach to business where we believed, first of all, we believed it was a race against time to, to make astonishing wealth. Um, and we also believed that we were the best in the world at it. And that was a really odd and unusual thing for us to believe. And yet underneath it, we didn't quite believe it. And that's why, you know, so almost... The Celtic Tiger was almost almost destroyed from within because I don't think people really quite believed it. We couldn't quite believe our luck. and um, couldn't quite believe you could make money that easily. And of course, the truth is you can't make money that easily. Um, so I found that very different. And I went into Aircom at the time and I actually found a couple of things. I talked earlier about W.H. Smith, the great training, the great development they gave you, you know, everybody from the most junior level organisation. And Aircom had just been privatised and I joined it. And it was wild. Like, people were coming up with ideas to do whatever they want and then doing them. And I was simply astonished at the, the, the lack of any kind of structure or there wasn't there wasn't, I'm not saying individuals weren't trained, but there wasn't that kind of culture of people being trained, of having processes, of having things. Sort. And I'm the, I'm the least process-oriented person, but boy, when they're not there, you miss them. And so I think, I think we were building an entrepreneurial culture without really the foundations that you'd have in somewhere with a much longer and deeper industrial history like the UK or France or Germany or somewhere. You're back with Air now as chairman, have been for the last few years after a lengthy spell away from the company because you left back in the mid-2000s. But what do you think to say to people who say that a large part of the problems that we've had in this country were down to Air and Aircom, uh, the fact that we had an underinvestment for many years in broadband, that there was too much emphasis placed within that company with shareholders rewarding themselves without doing the sort of common good that you now talk yeah. about for the like of Unpost. Yeah. Well, look, I think, gosh, you certainly learn that. You learn what happens if you don't do the common good. Having said that, I, I would say these things. Firstly, remember, it's the government that privatised Aircom. It wasn't Aircom that privatised itself. The government did it, and the government made an awful lot of money from it. And that money was used to set up the National Pension Reserve, and that pension reserve grew into the, some of the savings we have now, and, and actually has been incredibly successful. A lot of good things came out of that privatisation, but we weren't ready for it. And, you know, the disaster was the, the, the public selling the public shares when, when there wasn't really a sense as to what would happen with those shares. And for the reasons I said, I'm not sure that the company itself was capable of, like any company, for going into the private sector. It's going to need five or ten years to bed down. You don't learn overnight how to, how to run a PLC. It's really, really hard. Um, so, you know, I'd be more forgiving about the first few years, except... I do think there was a culture which was not helpful in relation to 
are, you know, there were endless arguments about would it be broadband or would it be mobile that would be more important? And I think there was a sense that mobile would be more important. And so, so the investment went into mobile. Um, I think we've got another issue, though, and it's an issue which we still have in this country and which is all pervasive, is I think we adopted the wrong government and regulatory model. We, you know, that privatisation of air was, Aircom was very much based on kind of the UK model of privatisations. And that UK model hasn't worked. You know, if you look right now, you see that all of the, you know, and, and the problem they had in the UK, and we followed it here with regulation, is to encourage competition. This was the holy grail. Encourage competition. Encourage retail competition. So consumers would have a choice. And that would really drive down prices and make things better for consumers. It's completely the wrong policy for this country. This is a relatively subscale country. We need, and it's growing. Being subscale and growing means, subscale means you don't make a lot of money as a company. Growing means you need to invest in infrastructure. And yet all our emphasis was in driving down the value of infrastructure and the price of infrastructure and driving retail competition. So I spent a whole time then dealing with Comreg, um, whatever they were called then, whatever the commission was then. And what they were doing was constantly trying to say, oh, you have to make your infrastructure available and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper for so others can buy it, Sky and Vodafone and whoever else and ESA and everyone can buy your infrastructure and, and sell it cheaper to consumers. And it made no sense because it was just devaluing the investment in infrastructure. And if you look at the UK now, they thought that was a UK model. All of their energy retail companies, virtually all of them are gone. Um, with, as soon as the energy crisis hits, there's no, you know, they have no real value in the end. If you look at their water companies all privatised, and in a sense there was a kind of element of a retail layer and infrastructure layer, infrastructure not invested in, retail companies looking bad, whole huge underinvestment there. Um, there's whole other sectors. You look at telecoms, what happened. So it was not a model that was the right model. And so I, w- I would very much say that if we're going to take a mature view, I'm not saying, look, I was an aircom. I was responsible for bad decisions. I was responsible for us not doing certain things, I'm sure. Um, others were. But actually, I would say you have to have a model. And it's even more important today that we have a model of government policy and critically, regulatory policy that is encouraging investment in infrastructure, n- not at the ex- not investment in retail competition at the expense of infrastructure. But one of the criticisms that would have been made of Aircom Air, can't remember when it changed its name, during the period when Tony O'Reilly was chairman, yeah. was that there was more money being taken out in dividends and repayments to the investors than there was been invested in infrastructure. Sure. Well, that's what's going to happen. If, if the infrastructure doesn't make a return, that's what investors will do. That's what any private investor will do. And, and I always have to, remind, have to remind myself sometimes, these investments, these investments aren't all, you know, it's not, yes, Tony O'Reilly may have had some money in there, um, but it's not, you know, the bulk of the money, the bulk of the investments in these companies are teachers, pension funds, um, 
fire uh, operator pension funds, public servants pension funds. That's largely what they are. The people who run those pension funds have to make a return so that when teachers retire, they have a good pension, so that when public servants retire, they have a good pension. That's that are, or sometimes they're sovereign funds, so that you know, which go into the government of that country so that they can pay pensions to everybody in the state. They have to make a return. If you say, well, yes, but your infrastructure will only make 3% return, and then you're going, well, that's not very much, and then says, oh, and by the way, that's only if you do it absolutely perfectly, which can't be done in a country like Ireland. So effectively, you make a loss, and then every pound you're going to, uh, every euro you're going to invest, of course people aren't going to invest. The two need to go hand in hand. I'm not at all saying, oh, well, look, you know, Aircom did things right, or others for that matter. Um, uh, but I am saying that, look, you ha- it, the regulatory models, the government policy and the private sector need to be working hand in hand. It's back to what I was talking earlier about in the UK and the cabinet office and getting people working together. You know, we need to have that spirit here. We're too small a country to be able to operate some American Anglo model of capitalism. It doesn't work. We're a small country. We're subscale. You're not going to make the return. I mean, I think... I think a, 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 a counterexample to well, first of all, uh, let me just, for the sake of air, say that air has actually done an amazing job since, has invested really heavily and consistently under private equity ownership and taken out big dividends, but invested very heavily so that now we are in the top half of countries in Europe for broadband. And when it comes to given our population distribution in rural broadband, we're probably in the top quartile. So actually, the job is being done and being done extremely well. Um, so it can happen, but it takes time for these things to work. There would be one criticism, though, that people would make of the current day error, and is that customer service is yeah. a big issue. Yeah. And I'm surprised, as you as chairman, would yeah. allow that to happen yeah. because I think customer service has always been one of the key benefits sure. of your business career. Sure, and look, it was crushing for all of us, myself, for Carol Ann, chief executive, for the team who run customer service. And, and look, it was a perfect storm. We actually, it was actually as a result of trying to improve customer service, which was to bring it in from offshore. We had customers uh, call centers in India and elsewhere, and we said, no, let's bring them into Ireland. Let's put them into Cork and Limerick and Sligo and Waterford. Let's put them in there and let's, let's operate the services here. And that literally coincided with COVID. And between that, bringing them back, and we probably got it a bit wrong and, and we'd all hold our hands up and say, maybe we didn't plan adequately, maybe we got made some mistakes then. But also we got really badly hit by COVID. And so um, it was terrible and really, really, really tough on customers. And I, I apologise and really apologise that people, you know, it's terrible when you have to wait hours in a phone. We've all had to do it with different companies. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's something which I think is awful. It's currently below two minutes, that waiting time. It's being fixed. You know, the work again is being done. And um, the call centre is opening a new call centre in Waterford. It's doing fantastically well. Sligo's doing really well. Limerick and Cork. So so actually it's being fixed. And, and you know, the strategy of our investors who are French uh, telecoms, private equity, NJJ, their strategy is very, very simple. Build two great networks, build a great mobile network, build a great fiber network, and have great customer service. And then 
sell products, you know, but it's really getting those three. We're the best 5G network in the country. I know it sounds like an ad for this, but it is true. We have the best 5G network. The fiber, fiber rollout is happening fantastically fast. I'm, by the way, working pretty closely with MBI, with National Broadband Ireland. And the customer service is fixed, but it's only one element of it. The really difficult elements of customer service, and this is as true in Unpust, and it's as true anywhere I'm involved, it isn't so much... I mean, I can talk about the wait time at call centres. That's great to get it down to two minutes, but actually you shouldn't have the complaints in the first place. And that's where the real issues are. Are the billing systems good enough? No. Um, you have legacy systems. You've got to knit it all together. Are what, you know, to use a current jargonish phrase, are the customer journeys mapped? Do we know what happens when you want something, you make a call, and how do you do it? All that work needs to be done and is being done. Those are the pieces that build customer service. And um, so, look, I'm absolutely standing behind air on this and saying it's going to do it you know and we are doing it just one thing i want to go back to your old aircom days you used to work for somebody who would be very well known to many of our listeners but maybe younger generations wouldn't actually understand how tony o'reilly was such a colossal figure in irish business in the 20th century and into the first decade of the 21st century what was he like to work for oh, it's fantastic i mean he's sort of he's um Look, he's larger than life and uh, very charismatic. Um, has I, I think he brought that thing that I think I said was missing uh, in Ireland at the time, that big industrial experience from Heinz. He brought that back into very Ireland. Very process-driven Very as well. Yeah, very process-driven, very organised, um, obviously an enormous intellect. And brave, you know, he had a real bravery. He'd say, try this, do that. He always had that great phrase about, I can't, I can't remember the exact phrase, but something about, uh, uh, um, you know, don't, 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 don't let the impulse stop. You know, if you decide you want to do something impulsively, do it and see what happens. You know, he'd, he'd be quite keen that you go out and try things. And, and um, I think that's a very... That was a very necessary thing at the time in the company, try different things, while at the same time, as you say, he was process-driven, organised, and very focused on money, you know, and how do you make money and how do you do it? Not, I'm sure not least for himself, but also for, also for the company. Um, and I think he is an astonishing figure, you know, and, and countries are built on astonishing figures, astonishing women, astonishing men, and and I think he's one of the people who really, really built this country. And, and, and I think what happened in relation then to, to Waterford Wedgwood and that it was incredibly sad. But I don't think anybody can fault him for trying there. Remind me, you told me a story, I think, many years ago about a portrait painting down in Drumoland Castle that you said <laughs> to himself had a chat about. Well, yeah. Uh, well, this makes me sound much grander than I am, but my, my mother's family in the distance past uh, were in Tremoland and uh, uh, the O'Briens. They were the O'Briens and one part of her family. And um, there's a portrait of my great-grandmother at the bottom of the stairs. And Tony O'Reilly was standing on his back to her and he was asking me, he said, I want you to do this, this. And I pointed to the portrait. I said, that's, that's my great-grandmother. And he was, oh, oh, really? I said, OK. <laughs> so, uh, but no, it's it's... I, I, I tell you, if my father was alive, he'd be saying, don't tell that story. They're completely the wrong <laughs> idea of you. As my father grew up in Mitchellstown and was, uh, uh, and my mother, indeed, my mother's father was from Donegal. And, uh, but yeah, that was one element to the family. Yeah. 
Your parents obviously had an enormous influence, your father in particular, from a very storied yeah. background in media. Yeah, and look, I was always growing up in a house where, you know, both my parents were working, my mother a teacher. My mother had to work, had to be a teacher because my father kept um, either leaving or losing his job um, as a journalist. And uh, the precarious existence of a journalist, I think he was originally a barrister, couldn't make money at that, and then became a journalist and was very young as editor of the Irish Independent. And then that got taken, well, just before it was taken over, actually, by Tony O'Reilly. My first year working with Tony O'Reilly was very difficult because I'd always thought he'd fired my father. And I remember saying to my father one day, saying, I'm finding it difficult working with Tony O'Reilly. Fired because he didn't fire me at all. It was the guy before him. So uh, and, and journalists went out and strike then because my father tried to take the paper up market. And he always had that sense of making things bigger than they are and having a, a real belief and a massive belief in the quality of journalism. It's one of the people who set up Rath Mines Journalism School and then worked with John Horgan and setting up NIHE Journalism and, and then went into RTE and was in RTE for many years as an executive. And, and I think he wasn't entirely happy as an executive. I think he, he didn't really enjoy that side of things. So as much as I may have taken to business, he certainly didn't. And he would have been reluctant that, at that. And he loved being a journalist. He always maintained journalism freelance at the same time and would write in various places. Um, but that writing was really important and it was an important aspect of growing up. My mother was a teacher and was just constantly at work teaching. And she, she, she taught an extraordinary range of subjects, German, French, English, uh, you know, a whole range of things, religion, uh, classical studies. And so it was quite an intellectual household to grow up in. And uh, um, yeah, it was, and, and I was a hopeless student. So I'm sure it was a massive disappointment. To so How could you have been a hopeless student if you went? ended up with an MA in history? Ah, well, you get there in the end, you know. Um, you get there in the end and you work and you do it. But uh, And I love it. And history was what uh, my father studied and I wanted to do that. And, and again, history, I think, is a great background for journalism. It's a great background. Interestingly, and I remember when I was in the UK at the time, there was a survey of business leaders and the single most popular degree among CEOs was history followed by engineering. And it's a great training because it's a training around facts. It's a training around look at the facts, see what the facts tell you, organise it, um, organise it and articulate it. You know, and I think that's, that's great training. And it's similar to journalism, similar to business. Given your family background, was that brought, what brought you to TV3 or how did you end up? End up so I ended up in TV3 because, uh, you know, I'd had enough of the transactions at Aircom in the early 2000s and I didn't enjoy it. I was unhappy, very unhappy there and uh, I, I wanted to leave. It just didn't seem like a good fit for me. So I left uh, when it was sold to uh, Australian private equity. I said, that's enough. Um, and then just this TV3 job came up and I was asked, 
did I want it? And I went and took a look and met the people. And I said, and it was private equity, which has always been in and out of my career. Waterstones was private equity. And I like that because it's what it does is it, it gives you a very sharp focus. You can turn businesses around. You can do things um, very quickly. You don't have long lines. You're, you're talking to your shareholder almost daily. So they asked me to go into TV3. And I thought, yeah, I'd really enjoy this. And the right size of business for me to go into and or I thought so at the time actually I think the difficulty for TV3 is it was always too small um but loved media absolutely loved it and it was it was it was really you know the first couple of years went fantastically well and then then the and global financial crisis and you were willing to spend hugely, money on oh yeah, things hugely ambitious and then the global financial crisis hit and I remember it I remember it April 2008 um advertising fell off a cliff and all we had was advertising and advertising was suddenly half in one month I'm like something's happening here and then the same happened in May and I'm like right we're really hitting a recession and actually I remember in July at that stage we still had that social partnership uh, model in government and the social partnership said well look maybe the economy's softening so, uh, and this included IBEC at the time. They, so they said, we'll, we'll just go for a 6% increase, pay increase. I'm like, are you nuts? I said, the wheels have come off this economy. I remember telling everybody, people thought I was mad and a doomsayer. I'm going, no, they really have come off. It, this was the canary in the, in, in the mine is, is, was advertising. So, um, and then of course the crash happened and, you know, when that was happening, I was doing a pay freeze and three months later doing pay, pay reductions, which is an incredibly painful thing to do. And then uh, redundancies. And, but, you know, again, a, a bit like when I talk about impost in the pandemic, again, to some degree, TV3 found its soul in that period, which said, look, we'll fight, we'll do, we know what we stand for. And partly because we couldn't afford a lot of programming, we said, let's make more programs ourselves. And I had really good investors. I persuaded them to put the money in to build a really huge studio, a magnificent studio, in which you were one of the, in fact, I think you were the first broadcaster from that studio with the Rugby World Cup. We built this huge studio and um, it was, uh, uh, and that became the basis for, really doing a lot of live broadcasting and um, also brought in Vincent Brown who was uh, who, who had been let go by RTE and um, such a talent um, and it kind the aim was to get to that mix of kind of on the one hand some kind of popular TV and on the other hand some really smart sharp-edged politics and and cutting-edge television and that's what I wanted it to be never quite got there you were one of the few people who actually managed to manage Vincent Brown. How did you do it? Yeah, Vincent and Vincent is Vincent is. I, I go for walks with him in, in, in down the pier in Dunleary still. So I think we managed to survive each other. Um, I think I think with Vincent, it's it was a case of actually when you do get a talent like that. I learned this in my Waterstones days in the UK. The Maverick managers. The maverick managers of bookstores, you go into a city like Manchester and the manager there, he'd have no time for you. He'd kick you out. He didn't want to see you visiting from head office or anything. This was his place and all of that. And you just have to give them more leeway. And generally, generally, they tend then to really, really deliver. And Vincent needs plenty of leeway. He's going to, you know, whatever you say, he's going to produce his own programme. He's going to be his own editor. He's going to do those things. So... 
don't pretend that you've got control. And, and if you don't do that, you know, often what can happen in that situation is, is executives can get upset because, because the, the, the uh, presenter isn't listening to them or they don't respect them or those things like that. Well, don't put, put yourself in a position for them to respect you or disrespect you. Just, you know, don't do that. And, and so in many ways, just that was, you know, that sense of a bit of distance was fine. But then we, Vincent would have very strong opinions sometimes. We'd argue it out, and we would argue it out, and we'd usually get to a point of agreement. And, and I think that once, you know, bright people have had the opportunity to have their say, however they say it, uh, it they then, uh, you know, then they're reasonably satisfied. I remember huge rows about, it used to be on at different times every night, and Vincent was convinced to be on at the right time, and uh, on at the same time every night, and I completely agreed with him. So I had to have a row with, with our uh, then director of programming, Ben Frau, who was equally mercurial. And uh, so caught between them, it was something else. And you just have to wear it lightly. That's all, not take any offence and realise that these are people who are incredibly passionate about their jobs. And that's the thing. With Vincent, there's pure, utter passion at the job to be the best. I mean, crazy things he did that are still amazing feats in broadcasting. One was to visit, to do a public debate in every constituency in the country. Nobody had done that before. RT and never that's did. Public it. service broadcast. That yeah. is real public service broadcasting. We'd have a thousand people a night in these places. And Vincent went around with two or three staff from uh, from TV3 and did that. And had quite a quite amazing achievement, an amazing engagement in politics. Um, and an amazing engagement in the political system. And when, when people often, you know, and sometimes I hear politicians say, oh, Vincent Brown's very unfair, doesn't do this and do that. I'm going, he's the fairest to you of all because he gives you room and space and, and you know, backbenchers who'd never been heard of, you know, being on television for two hours debating in their constituency. I, I was so, I, I, I can't say I was proud of it, I was proud of it, but it wasn't me, that was Vincent. That was his drive, that was his team. And the other thing was the one broadcast that I did, you know, play a part in, which I thought was actually literally then had to play a part in, was um, with the referendum, the marriage referendum. And because um, government wouldn't allow us into Dublin Castle, they said, no, that was only for RTE. And I was discussing this and, and Vincent said, I have a great idea. Why don't we do it in the George? <laughs> In, in the bar that was then, then Dublin's gay bar, as the language would have been used at the time. Um, why don't we do it there in the George? And I said, fantastic idea. Go for it. And went for it. And we had one of the most extraordinary broadcasts you've ever seen. And I think captured the mood far more than, than in the formality of, of Dublin Castle. And, but it was a broadcast. We couldn't it just went on and I said keep it going for another hour I was in there I was in the in the crowd in the George and they're going what do we do I said just interview anyone so I had to do an interview well, what does this mean to you everybody anybody who was around had to do an interview and it's a great great archive piece now you know so that to me was the joy and that was the fun of broadcasting okay but did you ever feel discriminated against in running TV3 yes about the establishment it was all about RT and it was almost a snobbishness a huge snobbery huge snobbery and the snobbery was mainly amongst my own class I always say the worst the the worst snobs were the kind of South Dublin males of which I am one 
Um, but it Even was about doing things like doing the rugby world cup. Yeah. In oh, they hated hated us having the rugby, of course. And um, but also there was this sense often you talk to somebody saying, "Oh, I hate TV three. Never watch it. Never watch it." And then after you've had a couple of pints, with the person you said, "Well, you've watched Vincent Brown. You've watched rugby. You watched something else. You watch. You saw morning television. You mentioned something you saw on there." And people didn't realise that they saw more of it. And this was this is actually the truth. Quite often in media, people don't always know the media they consume and uh, so yeah so there was a real a real snobbery now having said that some of it wasn't entirely misplaced some of our programming was you know we just didn't have the money to spend and it was too cheaply produced and you can't do it and but we had no choice that's all we could get so the real problem for us is that 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 Ireland is subscale so you know it costs more or less the same to make a program here as in the UK but in the UK you've got 15 times the audience so you're 15 times the revenue from advertising and so that made it very difficult I think the other thing of course was structurally it was all wrong around RTE controlling the price of advertising when it was subsidised for 50% of its revenues that's never a model that's going to work its price of advertising was always going to be too low and that meant TV3's advertising was too low so not only not only were the costs of our programme the same as in the UK or they should be but they weren't because we couldn't spend the money and um, but the advertising was sold much more cheaply per thousand you know so that wasn't that was not a good formula given that you loved it so much why did you leave it I left it because uh, I think after 10 years, nine years, I was there nine years, and we'd come out of the global financial crisis. And we, we, you know, had to restructure it. Um, we had to go to IBRC, who were the lender. We had to buy back the loans. We had to go through an auction. Um, we then had to refinance ourselves. I had to get the shareholders to put money in. They put more money in. They stood by it. And after you've done all of that, we then... We then got back and it started to lift again and fantastic out of recession. And almost immediately we came out, UTV announced they were coming into uh, the Republic and with a big fanfare and they said they were going to kill us and they'd be number two and everything and they were going to come in and they were going to take all our programming, Carnation Street, Hammerdale, all that. I remember the shock the day I heard it and I remember going into TV3 and getting everybody in for a town hall and people were really upset and really shocked and I said don't worry, we'll get through this. We'll find the way through it. And then I went up to my office and literally had my head in my hands and just thought, how will I do this? And brilliant CFO I had there said to me, says, you know, I don't think they can ever get to number two. I look at the ratings and I know how they work. So anyway, we set about a plan and we said we'd do Red Rock, which I was really proud of. We'd do our own thing. We'll do one or two other things. Do more hours of broadcasting. And they'd kind of somewhat made a mistake, UTV, by saying we'll be in in a year and a half's time. So we had a year and a half to kind of sort this out. They also boasted too much about it, which just annoyed people here. And people who had never been inside of TV3, including the South Dublin men, were all like, come on, go for it. You know, I want, we want TV3 to win. So with great support around it. And anyway, they, uh, when UTV opened, um, they opened and we had maybe... Uh, 11 share of audience 11 percent of of the total television audience and and they opened with a six percent share and then ours dropped 10 9 8 theirs theirs went up six seven and they were getting close and then and my cfo kept saying they've underestimated the impact of daytime television and morning television and ratings and almost miraculously it ebbed away and they started falling back again and we started growing again and we knew we'd won 
And it was a fantastic moment. It was a great achievement by a young team against what I saw as a very cynical manoeuvre that wasn't really adding any value to Irish media. And I was very proud of what that team did then. But I was exhausted. And at that stage, I said to... I knew that we couldn't continue to exist. It was subscale. You know, that was two near-death experiences in six years. I said, we've got to sell somebody bigger. We've got to sell somebody who's got something else to offer. And it was either going to be Virgin or Air, Aircom or, or Sky. You know, it was going to be one of them to buy it. And in the end, uh, Virgin bought it. And very grateful they bought it. And I think... And I think and I hopefully they've done well with it. Um, but, yeah, that's why I left. And your name has been mentioned many occasions about the possibility of another big media job, either as Director General of RTE or Managing Director of the Irish Times, when that came up over a year ago as well. Did you ever go for any of those jobs? Ever no. attempted? No, no, um, no, I didn't. And uh, I, I didn't, like, certainly when the Irish Times job came up, you know, it's the middle of the pandemic. On post, I was delivering a really vital and important public service. I had a team working their socks off. I certainly wasn't going to leave at that time, and I couldn't. And, and this is often the truth about jobs. It's, it's easier to get into a job than it is to get out. And, and I love a post, but it's still hard when you want to, want to leave. Um, and then, as so that was that. Um, and but the stories about RT have suggested that they didn't want you because you were too commercially focused. Well, that's that's for them to say. Um, I I would I, I, in a funny way. I think I think RT behaves far more commercially than I would. Um, I I actually would think that I I think that RT can do with a healthy dose of not looking at ratings. I think it's far too ratings driven. I talked about ratings in TV three because if you didn't become, remain the number two channel in the country you were finished, you were off advertiser slates. So we had no choice. But RTE gets half of its money from a licence fee. And I think that it can afford to be even more public service oriented. I think it did, in many ways, a great job in the pandemic. It did a lot to keep people informed. It so did, did other service. broadcasters. And so did News Talk, so did Day FM, so did uh, a particularly local radio. You know, a load of people do it. And that's the truth of, of media in this country. Um, so, so does RT act like monopolist in the way that it tries to use this muscle and power? Yeah, I think it does. I think it, I think, I think, and if it doesn't deliberately act so, it certainly subconsciously acts, acts so. I think it has always got the pricing of advertising wrong. And I think that's a structural issue also, though, with advertising in this country, that it's, you know, three buyers account for 85% of advertising, three media buyers. I don't think that's healthy. Um, I think that... Uh, so I think there's always a fear to put up ad rates because there's a fear that everybody will stop. And I think RT need, need to be brave there. I think there ought to be a complete distinction between what is advertising funded and what isn't. Um, my own view was maybe, um, and I can't say this now because the world changes, but when I was informed, you know, uh, six, seven years ago, I probably would have said, well, you know, do you need RT too? Um, particularly now since you have different ways of having red buttons, etc., and showing sport. And that was often the argument was you need to show sport. Do you need RT too? Do you need radio too? Do you need these? Whereas... Actually, RTE has the talent and the ability to be 
the most fantastic broadcaster, but that doesn't mean it has to be the biggest all the time. And that's where there's, to me, there's a contradiction between going for share when you're getting public uh, funding. Well, that brings me to the issue you've mentioned subscale on a number of occasions, yeah. but can we sometimes perhaps have a little bit too much ambition in this country for what we can actually support? And particularly when it comes to media, when you look at the way streaming has gone, uh, the influence of these major multinational players, how Google and Amazon have taken up the advertising revenue in Facebook, that unfortunately, much as though we love our TV stations and our newspapers in particular, we're just too small a country to be able to support them into the future. I think that is that is. Probably true, um, unless we find different models. You know, and the the media commission was important. Um, I don't think we found the model through there yet. Um, uh, I I'm a massive massive supporter of of journalism. We need good journalism, um, but again, uh, you know, I I would argue that in a bit like talking about regulation is that maybe. Um, the uh, broadcasting authority had given out too many licenses. Uh, maybe there were too many licenses. Uh, maybe it's impossible for all these stations to compete and make money. Maybe there's room for two or three, but there's not room for 10 or 12. And, and that's a reality I think we should face. Um, I think that you know, broadcasting output probably does need to be less rather than more, but needs to be higher quality, um, and, or needs to be of a consistently higher quality. Um, meeting where sometimes it's great, but sometimes it's not. Um, I don't think we need to mimic UK programming so much. Um, I don't think we need to be mimicking international formats so much, uh, particularly now since all of those are, you know, everything's so widely available here, people are going to watch them anyway. Um, the argument against it is saying, well, if people aren't watching you then they're not going to watch your current fairs or news or your drama or whatever. I, I don't buy that. You know, I think, I think that has changed. And I think the ability of international markets to sell things, to sell good films, sell good programs. I look at the incredible job my friends in Element have done. You know, they've sold Element for probably allegedly a you know, very large sum, quite rightly so. And they built that up and they've shown what you can do from here. And I think that's a much more interesting model than a model of old broadcasting, old linear broadcasting, of having to fill hours and hours and hours of different channels um, and spread it ever and ever thinner. I, I don't think that makes sense. You have to have media diversity, though. Absolutely have to have media diversity. You have to have News Talk. You have to have Today FM. You have to have RTE, you know. Um, you have to have media diversity, but not to the same extent. And then finally, I think there's all sorts of issues that they've always been slow to grapple with around UK, what were called opt-out channels here, being able to sell Irish advertising and breaks. And that's, that's dreadful. That's really cynical stuff. And I, I, I hate that cynical stuff. I hate the cynicism of people just being greedy and making money um, without adding anything of value. Just a couple of things to finish. I'm going to go back to one post to finish them with. Uh, you spoke earlier about uh, diversity and inclusivity and trying to bring that in in the United States with W.H. Smith. Um, how well have you managed to do in Unpost? And as a South Dublin middle-aged man, how do you find it working among so many senior women in management? Well, it's, that has been, I mean, that has been extraordinary. You know, when I went in, the management team was all men. And 
each are really, you know, very talented people and many have gone on and done very talented, big jobs, big jobs in Europe, big jobs elsewhere. But there was no diversity. And I remember asking, are there any women in the organization? And finally, someone said, well, I have somebody a few layers below. And uh, I said, but she's leaving because she's bored. So I asked to meet her, Aoife Byrne. I said, so I met her and really impressed by her. And she'd been, you know, done incredibly at Smurfit Business School and, you know, really educated. I said, well, look, would you be chief of staff? And we didn't know what to mention. She said, yeah. And she then set about really transforming management in Unpust and she had as a major drive the need for diversity and she was the one who drove it not me I supported it um, and we ended up then three years later four you know four years later with a management team that was 50 50 male female and it's such a difference and it's a difference as a team how you work as a team it's not that the individual capability is is that different it's just how you work together is very different and actually, you have slightly different ways of thinking. And it's fantastic and worked really, really well. Um, but, you know, you have to keep working at that. And the next thing we've had to work out is the gender pay gap. And again, uh, uh, Aoife started that. And then our new Eleanor Nash, who's our chief people officer, she's driven that. And now we've eliminated the gender pay gap. And you work away at it and you do more. And now we're moving on to other, you know, certainly we haven't done enough about ethnicity and we're doing more about that now. Um, and disability, which is a major issue, the fantastic work that's done in, for example, Trinity Centre for People with Intellectual Disabilities, chaired by Hugo McNeil. That is amazing about um, getting people from their placements in companies like Unpust and they do amazing work. What they actually really do is they set a standard for people around them, around different ways, again, of thinking, of being happy at work, of being happy to have a job, you know? And so all of that diversity is... And, and look, this is not soft stuff. Every single study around the globe, every single study says that diverse companies perform better financially. They perform better in every way. Every single study says that. There's not one study that says, actually, if you have an all-male team, you do better. So this isn't some kind of, I don't like the word woke, but this isn't some kind of woke fantasy. This is, no, this is how a good company works and is managed. So I'm the beneficiary of that rather than the driver of it. And I think it's a really positive thing to see. So yeah, I think it's, and, and long may it continue. Okay, I'm going to go left field question to finish, given that we started with your career in book selling and given that Unpost is the sponsor of the Irish Book Awards, what are the best books you've read this year? Wow. Um, I think the best book I read this year, although I think it was up in the awards last year, was uh, Claire Keegan, Small Things Like These. I think Claire Keegan, I think, is... There's two writers who've been really astonishing. Sally Rooney, because I think normal people really set set a light, a whole interest in reading in a different way. And she's almost um, cinematic in how she writes her books, changing times. The skill is extraordinary. But Claire Keegan's books, small things like these, and then the book that became the film Cune, um, which was Foster, those are two... I mean, those are two of the most moving, extraordinary books you'll ever read in your life. They will move you like nothing else. 
They're also wonderful books to give to people because giving somebody a book is an act of aggression because you're, <laughs> you're, you're saying to them, you have to read this. And they're going, oh God, do I have to read it? Where, whereas these are really short books. So people are so relieved when they see it's a short book you're giving them. And then people will thank you forever. You've given them an incredible gift. So that, that's probably Claire Keegan, I would say. Thank you very much for spending the time on the Magnified podcast. David McRedmond, thank you very much. Thank you. And that was David McRedmond in today's Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast. There is a lengthy series of other podcast interviewees. If you haven't had a chance to listen to them, have a look at the list on Spotify, on GoLoud app, on Apple, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And you'll see that there's over 20 at this stage that have completed the interviews. And we hope that you get an opportunity to enjoy them as well when you're taking a walk or going for a drive or whatever it is you do when you're listening to your podcasts. So until the next time, from me, Matt Cooper, thanks very much for having been with us.